He's the talk radio guy and best-selling author who sees life as an ongoing version of Forrest Gump. She's the award-winning TV reporter that gave up the if-it-bleeds-it-leads mentality of the news. Two different points of view, from parenting to politics, from football to finance, from the environment to education. If it's going on in the world, these two have an opinion. Here is John and Jen. Welcome back to the John and Jen Show. For those of you who might not know, I'm actually John. <laughs> and I am Jen. Yeah, Thank sometimes. You for yeah, yeah, you know, I don't want to mansplain it too much, but just to start right out of the gate, you know, clear. And happy Father's Day to you. Thank you so friend. much. Thank you. Mm-hmm. A special Father's Day edition of the John and Jen Show. You know, um, I've always, I know a lot about your dad through you, and of course, watching him from years on television here in Chicago with the sports and other things. And I just have never, I don't think I've ever asked you what were the pros and cons of having a dad who was in everybody's living room, you know, five nights a week for decades doing the sports and come up with the Weigel Wieners. And I suppose everywhere you went, people yelling, hey, Weigel Wiener, you know? Um, I think that was a lot harder for my brother than it was for me, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, you know, for those who don't Sorry, know, slow yeah, on the uptake there. Go ahead. A little bit, yeah. Um, my dad was like Ron Burgundy from Anchorman. He was a local sports legend in Chicago. For those who who weren't raised in Chicago might not have a clue who Tim Weigel was. But the the real rub for the whole thing, and, and we can get into that, but my dad died on Father's Day. Oh, I remember. So it was the 17th that year. It always falls on a different. Uh, so mm-hmm. Friday was, I always try to make the 17th a celebration uh, of sorts, right? It's because it's a celebration of the day he transitioned into you know heaven if you want to call it that but it's still a death day and it was a real way to mess up the hallmark holiday for our family i I imagine jeez but your dad was young he was 56 yeah Ah. 21 years ago so anyway it's it's kind of hard to believe it's been over two decades since he passed but when i was little you know he was the guy that let everybody come to the table and it didn't matter if he knew you or not if you Mm. wanted to talk about the bears or the cubs or or whatever it was, he let you come to the table, and it was so frustrating being his kid because we just wanted time with Dad. Our parents were yeah. divorced, and we wanted to spend time with Dad, and weekends were with Dad, and weekends were fun time for Dad because he worked very hard Monday through Friday. So we would have you know limited time with him as it was. So that's a really long answer to your very basic question, that it was, it was kind of hard having mm. to share him in this sort of local Chicago fishbowl during a time when Chicago sports, especially when the Bulls were three-peating and all this stuff, you know, we couldn't go out to dinner without getting interrupted and people wanting to come over and say, hey. And and he was always very gracious and nice and kind, but, yeah, we had to kind of share him with the, the fans. So we got used to it. And then when he passed, it was like, oh, man. So I, I celebrate him, you know, personally, right, with, mm-hmm. with family, and we, we mention it and raise a glass and all that fun stuff. But it makes this weekend in particular especially painful. But, look, I'm a kid that lost a dad. I know a lot of parents who've lost kids yeah. in the work I do. And, and this week I had a conversation that put me really into perspective with our mutual friend, Joe McQuillan. Oh, yeah. You know, Joe wrote a couple of books, uh, My Search for Christopher on the, on the Other Side and We're Not Done Yet Pop. Because he lost his son, Christopher, very suddenly. Uh, Christopher and a few friends decided to go out on a canoe uh, in January when it was about 7 degrees outside, and the canoe tipped and all the kids died. And they were all wonderful, you know, bright lights in the community, and they all died. So four families were destroyed because of, you know, their bad choices. 
And now Joe is picking up the pieces, and for him getting up and going anywhere to me is a victory. I mean, I can't even imagine. I don't ever want to try to pretend I can imagine. So when I think of my grief as a you know kid yeah. who lost a dad, I can't imagine Joe's grief because it took him down this path of really trying to explore, you know, where's my kid? What's going on? And so we share that because I went down that path when my dad died of where the heck is he? What the heck does it mean? I was so mad at people trying to sort of get rich off the grieving, if you will, which is uh, why I took that sharp left turn, you know, after a couple of decades in traditional news. Mm. Mm-hmm. You know, Joe McQuillan is salt of the earth guy. Absolutely. I mean, uh, I met him through you a few years ago when his first book came out. He came to my studio. We had a conversation for my Life 2.0 podcast and outside of being a Buffalo Bills, Buffalo Sabres fan. He's an okay uh-huh. guy. Other than we that, can forgive him. Yeah, we can forgive him for that mm-hmm. stuff. Yeah. Uh, but you're 100% right. And I also have friends who have lost their children way before what we'd say is their time. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how they get up. I don't know how they continue. And I I, I wrote about two of them. Uh, Chelsea Hewitt and Tim Wachko uh, were killed in an accident in the Upper Peninsula. And I lived up there in 2002. It was mm-hmm. Chelsea died on the scene. She was 16. Mm-hmm. And uh, Tim died a couple of days later. He was uh, 17. And, and uh, you know, I've watched all this and I was around all this. And, my, and I don't know to this day when I'm with them what to say. Right. All these years later. Right. You know? Well, you know, I've also watched a lot of parents who've lost kids kind of just never, ever, ever get over it. And, and again, I'm not judging because I, I don't ever want to be in that position. And you never really fully get over it. I no. don't mean to sound, but I don't know if you're I mean, supposed to. You know, but I mean, like even going in and dealing in. So I guess I should reframe that. I have seen a lot of people who will not get out of the um, yeah. anger and the rage, and and so for what I give such celebration for someone like Joe, he's taken his grief, he's channeled it into this new yeah. ability, which is where he he really truly feels. He wakes up at about three in the morning sometimes, and he gets these downloads from Christopher, yeah. which some people call automatic writing, and some people believe that you know from the other realms there can be messages that are delivered. And Joe is a regular guy. He was yeah, know, he is a mortgage guy. Before that, he sold he cars. Smoked, he, yeah, you he know? smoked cigars, he sells smoked cars, cigars. and goes to the watched, yeah, yeah, goes yeah. to the game, watches the Bills. He's a regular dad. Yeah, and he's got two other beautiful kids, and um, you know he's. He's a father of three, he says all the yeah, time, and that's yeah. that's who he is. But he is choosing to help other parents. So for anybody who's out there and might be listening to this, and if you've had a significant loss, first of all, my, my heart goes out to you, and second of all, you're not alone. And Chris is speaking through Joe, so just look up Joe McQuillan. Look for the book, My Search for Christopher on the Other Side, or even We're Not Done Yet Pop. You'll find him. It's on Amazon. And he is this unbelievable connector, John, mm-hmm, to other people, mm-hmm. helping them find the resources. You know, we're always comparing notes on people, you know, who claim to have intuitive abilities and whether we think they're full of BS or whether we think they're legit. And it's just so fun to have his filter because he and I are very similar in our BS detector. You know, yes. he was in sales. Yeah, I was yeah. in journalism. Hello. We are skeptics <laughs> by nature. So um, it's really cool to connect the dots with Joe and watch how he's helping, you know, he gets these emails every week from parents who are grieving and say, I just couldn't get out of bed. And then I saw you and yep. heard your interview and I got your book. And and he's just great at the way he connects others. So well, here's when the time, to Joe. Yeah, here, cheers to Joe and Chris. And when the time is correct and right, we'll have him on here and, and explore this a little further. Yeah. Uh, he's, uh, he's, he's an incredible guy. Uh, I can't say enough about him. Uh, I believe he was at that event you did last year that I spoke at. Didn't he yes. come up? Yeah, he was there. He and did. I get this beer bear hug from behind. I'm like, who's grabbing me? Well, it's Joe. 
So that's okay. Uh-huh. All good. That's right. It's just Joe. And, you know, Joe thinks, you know, he get, he loves to think that Christopher comes to him as a sign of the cardinal, right? Because every time he's thinking of him, he'll see a cardinal. And we bonded over that because the morning my dad died, Father's Day 2001, right after he passed, I went downstairs and I was just kind of in this, you know, shock like you are after you watch someone take their last breath. And then you kind of wonder, are you there? Are you with me? What's happening, right? What's happening? Yeah. And I went downstairs to the porch, and there was this gorgeous cardinal right there on the ledge. I mean, I could touch it. It was so close. And he was just like, you know, in full song. I mean, and, and so beautiful and fearless. And, and I just felt like, you know, I was like in this sad place. And I really felt like my dad was like, I'm right here. I'm right here. I'm right here. I'm right here. And that was his favorite bird for a while. He loved that team because they actually were in Chicago. They were the Chicago Correct. Cardinals. You know, a little trivia for you folks out there who <laughs> don't don't mess with a sportscaster's kid, I'm telling you. <laughs> anyway, so that whole thing um, made me think that my dad, if he wanted to give me a wink, would show up as a cardinal. And, and so Joe and I bond over that. You know, it's just a fun little... Yeah. It's a fun little thing to do because even, you know, I had a, a conference since we last talked uh, in Long Island... And uh, I had a bunch you of You spend a lot there. of time out in Long Island, man. No, not really. Just a couple trips a year. Just seems like it. You know, it's just, yeah, exactly. I'm always talking to, there's something in the water in Long Island. Yeah. Can't even, it's weird. There's like some vortex out there. That's a serious I, commute. It is. It was a 13 and a half hour drive stopping halfway in the middle on Ohio. But, you know, I, I there's this woman named Pat Longo I've talked about before with a yep. best-selling book about anxiety. And she talks about your language. And when we put stuff out there, we really got to be careful with what we say and how we say it because literally thoughts become things. Her whole thing is we're broadcasting a vibration like an antenna, just like people listening to this in the car. So I was sitting, you know, I couldn't send an email. It was really pissing me off. I was like, gosh, darn, this computer is really <laughs> pissing me off. And she says, cancel, cancel, cancel. And she's like four, eight, you know, so it's like having yes. Yoda in the kitchen. And I look over <laughs> at her and she says, now, right now you say, my computer works perfectly, and everything technically is going my way. And I just looked at her like, right, lady. Mm. And I said, my computer works perfectly, and every email I try to send goes off without a hitch. You know, I just kind of changed it. I smiled. And sure enough, five minutes later, it started working per- started working mm. great, right? So, so what the scientists, the metaphysics will say is that's just the things manifesting, matching the vibration of what I'm putting out there, Mm -hmm. you know? And so I was driving in my car, stuck in traffic. That's so much fun, right? In Chicago on the highway. And I was thinking to myself, you know, I just want to really bring in the light, forget the negative. I'd heard some awful stories about a person that I used to work with and it was really bringing me down. And I went, no, Jen, no darkness, just the light. Just be in the light. That's it. And sure enough, a truck crosses in front of me with the sign Mr. Light and then another one honest to goodness and I I was like fumbling for my phone you know trying not to cause an accident to click a quick picture you know I put it on my little dashboard magnet and then I and then within 30 seconds another truck cuts in front of me and it was like light tech and so it was just (laughs) so funny and so you know what maybe it's just I put out the word light, and so the universe showed up with a lot, you know, the word light. Either way, it's a pretty cool party trick, and I recommend it. Yeah, you know, I got to, it's, that's good stuff. And we talk <laughs> about this all the time off the air. People should know that. For the most part, these conversations are just one hour of our week talking on the air. This is right. how it is off the air. Right. And um, I, I'm of the mindset that, you know, somehow there's a, it's really important to disconnect from things like oh, the computer's not working and let it go. And, but I'd like it to work. And then let it go again. Yes. And this past week, we had some serious storms here in, uh, in the Chicago area. And particularly where we live, 
85 mile an hour winds come in, uprooted trees, roofs gone, things like that. Right. There were tornadoes that touched down. It was exactly. Nuts. Exactly. So, you know, you see this stuff on television, you go, wow, that's really sad and difficult. And then they go to the next story. But when it's in your own backyard, literally, obviously it changes things. And driving into the, the city three times a week, you could see the devastation and trees laying down. And yep. there was a, about a 75, 80 foot uh, pine tree, two blocks over, totally uprooted in the middle of the street. I mean, wow. the force that it takes for that to happen, if you've not experienced that, you see the aftermath of it. It's very humbling. But now that means that there's a branch of immense proportions on my garage and stuff laying on the lines and all this kind of stuff. So all last week I wrangled with uh, ComEd to come out and do things. ComEd came out, made sure the electricity was on. But we don't touch those branches because they're not on our lines. Mm. Okay. It goes back and forth. And I'm of the mindset, because of my dad, quite frankly, that if you can do it yourself, you do it, son. You don't hire somebody else. Oh, dear. (laughs) Well, that's good when I'm 30. But when I'm 63, maybe climbing on the roof with a chainsaw might not be the best move for Johnny. You know what I'm saying? So I I woke up with it. I I think it was like Wednesday or Thursday last week. I woke up with this. I'm going today to cut this down. Mm -hmm. It's the neighbor's tree. She's an elderly lady. She's, you know, I'm trying to help her out the best I can. But the branches came off this huge uh, elm tree that she has in her yard and they got to go because now we're days into this and they got to clean it up and i'm literally thinking you know what i'm going to do this today but if there's a better way to do this or something else i'm, I'm open to that mm-hmm. but if by noon something doesn't happen i'm going to go start cutting stuff down yeah i'm out getting the car ready to head downtown and i turn around there's a very tall six foot nine inch human in my driveway wearing all orange <laughs> with a helmet he goes we're here to take your tree sir Oh, dear. And I said, you are. He says, yeah, the village hired, you know, these private contractors and this and that. So I said, good, because I was going to go up on the roof. He goes, not a good idea. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you were being saved, my friend. <laughs> yeah. So this, so I told him I'm going to be gone for about an hour. I came back, and sure enough, they got the truck in the in the alley and about a 50-foot boom all the way across my yard. to the mm. And they're cutting away and doing their job. And, and I went, it's that simple. If there's another way, I'm open to it. Now, look, they were headed here anyway. Mm-hmm. That's a given. Right. But the fact is, what I was thinking about lined up with what they were doing, and I, I kind of got a kick out of that, you know. That's, so. a good, that's a good story. You know, I had a friend who lost their transformer. Mm. You know, it was just a big yeah. lightning strike hit the transformer in town, and so he's one of those people that actually has a generator. You know, you, you read yeah, about these people. Yeah. Yeah, he's these got people. one. Yeah. And so he had the generator going, and it was helping his power, and then also the neighbors were kind of plugging into that. But because it was two houses and one generator, it wasn't enough to warm the water heaters. So 56 degree showers, boo, that is not yeah. fun. <laughs> we forget how we're so used to our air conditioning. Oh, and I you know. know, we I think we talked about this in earlier shows. I didn't have air conditioning growing up. Yeah, me neither. Up. Me neither. We, didn't, we just flop sweated our way through. Yeah, we had I to know. just buckle down and do it. There was no AC. Are you kidding? That was at a hotels. Right. You didn't have that at home. Yeah. The only person I knew had air conditioning was a friend of mine, Al. His sister was... Um, had some physical challenges and things they needed mm-hmm. to keep the house cool. But everybody else, we just lived with it. Did you ever do the thing like you put the box fan in the window and lay at the end of the bed? Yes, but did you ever put, now here's another one, ice <laughs> what? ice in a bowl and then put the box fan. So you have a little table with ice. So there's, and then you put the box Brilliant. fan in the window and the windows bring, you know, of course that didn't always help if the air outside was hotter than the air inside. You kind of don't want to bring in that hot air. Yes. But if you put ice in front of the box fan, that is 
the cheapest air conditioner, I can tell you. <laughs> it was it was like what we did as kids, and we couldn't keep ice. You know, we were sure. going to Seven Eleven to buy ice. <laughs> God, yeah, that was never that never occurred to me to do that. Nor would my mom probably have permitted that because back then we didn't have a Seven Eleven where we lived. It was these yeah. little metal ice cube trays that you crack them open and have oh, to sure. refill them. Yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. come on, nobody does that anymore, but. Right. Yeah. Actually, I don't know if it was Seven Eleven. I think it was called the White Hen. Which oh, the is White now, Hen, yeah. Yeah, now R.I.P. White Hens. But yeah, it was the yeah. White Hen. We used to go to White Hen, and this is just bored teenagers. And now that I have a teenager, I'm horrified <laughs> if he's doing this. But we used to go to the White Hen and pretend that we were in college at Northwestern when we were really like 15, 16 years old. <laughs> and we would talk to the guy behind the counter. His name was Phil, you know, real kind of a loner guy. Yeah. He would always get excited. We would come in and we would spin these tales of... Oh, these exams, they were so hard. Oh, my and, You know, gosh. like, we would just just talk and talk and talk and, you know, go buy our Snickers, and then we'd just laugh, thinking, oh, boy, did we pull one over on him? And he was probably thinking, boy, they're full of crap. Yeah, probably. <laughs> Phil had a BS detector, too. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Wow. The summertime stuff, do. the summer stuff to me is all good. You know, I don't wear shoes from basically April till October if I don't have to. All about, I mean, I, I never. I mean, yeah. I get I get my summer feet on, turns into a hoof, and I'm good. I'm just out doing stuff in the yard, right. uh, and I enjoy that stuff. And it's, even when it gets really, really hot, I think about how many times I practiced football in high school and college uh, in in extreme heat, mm-hmm. and and you know dealt with that. And I kind of thrive it. And I mean, it was pushing it to be a heat index of 112, but right. but even so, you know, it's, it doesn't last forever. And, and this too shall pass. What I find fascinating to a greater or lesser degree is that people act like it's never been hot before. Well, it's oh just like my when it God. gets to be it's seven the degrees, same it's the thing. same thing. Yeah. yeah, I remember interning the summer after my senior year in high school. I interned downtown at, w, at WLS at ABC for my dad, and I and I had a stick shift Volkswagen Scirocco, five nice. speed, no AC. Are you kidding me? Crank sunroof, crank windows, crank. manual steering. It was a workout <laughs> just to get to work. If you I know bet. what I mean. And when you're stuck in Chicago traffic, so I would drive downtown. And I would have to park. You know, it was basically break break even for me because mm-hmm. of the parking costs in Chicago. Eventually, I started taking the train once I figured out the route. Right. But when, I, but I would literally. It's so funny. It's like I sound like my dad when he used to say, "Would walk uphill both ways." But I would drive to work, and I would I would sweat through my outfit. So the first time it happened, I was like, "Okay, well, I better you know bring a backup." So I would drive to work in my like gym clothes and a t shirt mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and shorts, and I would pack my work clothes, which would be like a sundress and flip flops or whatever. And I would go as soon as I got into work, I would go into the bathroom and change out oh of my, my sweaty clothes. <laughs> it was crazy. Golly. You're so yeah. innovative back then, huh? Hey, you know what? And I, here's the other thing. Like, kids are leaving jobs because they have one difficult conversation. Oh, 20-somethings can't start. handle confrontation. and They aren't accountable, blah, blah, blah. I'm not saying all of them. But I read these articles that talk about how they shift jobs more than any generation because they just can't handle not being accepted and I not know. being celebrated. It's called life, and life is difficult. And sometimes you're not always clapping for you, and they're not always cheering you on. That's called building up your resistance, resilience, and all of those things. But that's not happening most of the time, according to the articles I'm reading lately. Three seasons, three uh, summers, uh, my junior, senior year of high school and my first year in college, I worked construction. And I worked pouring concrete driveways and, and stairways and you name it. Had to be at work at seven o'clock in the morning. The guy was a couple blocks away, so I'd walk over to his house and I learned to drive a Bobcat front loader and I became the truck guy and the jackhammer guy and all the heavy equipment stuff kind of fell on my shoulders but I did that 12 14 hours a day for three years I made pretty good money back then but I got yelled at all day 
all Yikes. day. I mean, that's kind of, but you know, when you own your own business and time is money, you know, I didn't realize that back then. I just got paid. I did my thing. But you know, when the, when the concrete truck was coming and, and cement was on its way, that all cost money. This guy's voice went up 19 octaves and everybody was an a-hole in the whole drill. And, and you, you know, and you realize it's not personal. And I think that's the difference. I never took a lot of stuff personally in the beginning. It was like, who is this clown? He's the guy that signs my checks. Okay, I'm going to have to deal with this in some way, shape, or form. And I've seen guys like that over my lifetime. And I've learned to not take it personal. I think maybe a little touchy-feely here with some of these kids have taken everything personal. And it's not. Because if you can't right. do it when you're 18, you're going to have a difficult time when you're doing it 28, 38, 48, and so on. So here is an article from vice.com talking about these serial ghosters, okay? Because kids now can text everything. They're quitting the day of. There's no two weeks notice. I was just talking with somebody about this. She wants to leave the job, but she's afraid if she gives the two-week notice, the boss is going to make her life hell for those two (laughs) weeks. So what people are doing now is they're quitting via text, and then they're leaving these bosses high and dry. So here's this article. It says, Eric Sampson's friends call him a serial work ghoster because he's quit his job with no advance notice twice. First time was as a 24-year-old working for a Fortune 100 company in Toronto after 17 months on the job. The second time was this past year as a 29-year-old manager at a Crown Corporation. In both instances, he left his six-figure positions, six figures in their 20s, don't get me started. In both instances, he quit via short text message sent on the day he decided not to show up anymore. How many things are wrong in that paragraph in your view, John? (laughs) Everything except uh. (laughs) <laughs> right. you know i i it's 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 the sign of the times i guess mm-hmm. you know technology is definitely surpassing our humanity and ability to handle stuff like that i mean you can hide but you can't hide forever life somehow makes you get out and do some dance steps you never wanted to learn and i mm-hmm. think the harder the knocks you have early on the better you off for the long term and a lot of people delay all that stuff i don't want to deal with it i don't want to deal with it eventually you'll have to and if you're not prepared it's going to have its way with you it's very very tough and Eric Sampson, by the way, is a pseudonym because this person had to sign non-disclosures. Sure. But he tells this uh, reporter that he would ghost again because he felt he did his best, now get this, to communicate how unhappy he was with his work Aww. circumstances ahead of time. Here, Aww. Here's his quote. I gave my bosses every opportunity to hear and understand what my concerns were and ample opportunity to act. If that's low on their priority list... If there's that little urgency to resolve the issue that I'm bringing forward, then I don't have a bleeping ounce of respect for you. I don't have any desire to extend any kind of professional courtesy to you. I can walk away with a clean conscience. That's his, that's a statement. Okay, next caller. Wow. Yeah. I mean, and so that's that's what I'm finding sure, too. Sure. Sure. And so here's what I'm hoping for my 16-year-old, who, by the way, started his summer job right after school. He had like three days off, and then mm-hmm. boom, he starts this job. 8A to 4P, Monday through Friday. He's a camp counselor for kids who are four to six years old. That is not an easy, breezy job. He's chasing after little ones who have, you know, like whirling dervishes, basically. And he's responsible for them and and all this. And and I I make him his lunch. And anybody out there listening who's got a teenager, I know you're past this phase, John, but I think he eats every hour and 10 minutes. Like he needs (laughs) to eat all the time. I cannot. So his lunch isn't a lunch. It's like a sandwich with a plethora of snacks for when Mm -hmm. he starts to graze. You know, Mm -hmm. he's feeling faint with hunger. He needs to go get some, you know, hummus. 
So, I mean, I just pack up half the fridge every day, puts it in his backpack, <laughs> and then he rides his bike in this 100-degree heat, yeah. gets to work. And I'm like, you know what? Good for you, kiddo. Exactly. I don't think Eric Sampson ever did that. And shame on his parents for not teaching him that he needs to show up every once in a while and, and muscle through it. Unbelievable. And, and yet not so unbelievable because things, you know, come and go. And I will never uh, forget the lessons of work ethic that I got on the job pouring concrete to this day when I even was going to go up on the roof and cut, uh, you know, get the chainsaw out. But mm-hmm. even to this day, when I'm working out in the yard or helping other people do things, I clean up to excess. And they're like, why are you doing that? I'm like, it goes back to when I was, you know, in high school and college working on the job for construction. We didn't get paid till it was done to the customer satisfaction. So right. every twig and stick and piece of garbage. I mean, I'm, I'm almost fanatical about it to some degree going, it's like the customer, but except now I'm the customer, right? I want it to look right. Right. So those work ethic things, that and, and combining sports with, you know, discipline and things, you know, especially the business that we're in, mm-hmm. you know, doing this show uh, comes out of discipline for both of us. You know, we create this every week. We do it because we're supposed to be doing it, in my opinion. If we weren't, we wouldn't. It's pretty mm-hmm. simple. But to show up, do all the pieces that need to go with it, make it all work, that takes work ethic. I could have never imagined Mm-hmm. texting anybody who had ever hired me to radio going, I'm not real happy about how things are. I'm, I'll see you. On a so, text message. In a text message. So here's an interesting reality, too. I, I heard from a friend. This is like, that sounds like such a high school thing. So like I heard from a friend. But I heard from a friend <laughs> about something that a former uh, colleague was saying about me that was completely not true. And my friend knew it wasn't true because they knew the whole circumstance, but she wanted me to know that it was out there. And it was one of these moments of like, what do I do? So I was I was sort of processing it. I got the information. It came in. I was driving my son around because he can't yet drive. He has his permit, but he's not yet driving solo. And he hears all this go down. And so as I'm sort of processing it and go, I'm, I'm thinking, should I call this person and confront them? Should I let it go? Should I do this? Should I do that? What why maybe I need to process this with a friend who knows this person, all this stuff. And I said to my son, I go, hey, kiddo, sorry, you got to watch mom go through this. I'm just sort of processing. And he goes, no, mom, I get it. Like, that's why I have a therapist. And I was like, <laughs> yeah. He goes, so I can talk to her about things that I wouldn't talk yep. to you and yep. dad about. I said, exactly. So sometimes it helps to talk it out. And then you can figure out your next steps. And he was like, exactly. So I, a, a friend called who was, I'd say, 30-something. I'm not sure. Late 30s, maybe. Mm-hmm. And I tell them the story. And her reaction was, you need to text her right away. Blah, oh. blah, blah, and blah. And I'm like, hmm. And then, of course, I talked to a friend who's in her 50s, and she says, I would suggest calling her right away, right? Then I talked to a friend who's somewhere in the middle, and he said, let it go. Don't give mm-hmm. it oxygen. Mm-hmm. Say goodbye. Walk away. Because the people who know you know the truth, and that's the truth. The people who really know me know the truth. And so that's what I decided to do was the third answer. But I find it so fascinating, and it says here again in this article in Vice.com, he calls this problem with people quitting, it's a texting culture culprit. Sure. The culprit is the texting culture. Ghosting is a reality of the workplace now, he says. And it could be a generational thing that there's this fear to say no, right? And maybe a discomfort in having to reject somebody or be rejected, for sure. You know, many, many years ago, I went through the EST training, Earhart Seminar Training. Have you ever heard of that? Mm-mm. Werner Earhart was a big personal improvement guru back in the 60s and 70s. It was it exploded around the world. And in the early 80s, uh, I f- felt I needed to go. And I went to this thing. It was over two weekends and one weeknight. And it was uh, like 250 bucks back then. Big money. 
Mm-hmm. And basically all they did was tell you for eight hours a day what an idiot you are. And they che- the whole thing is to break it down so that the last seven hours of the, the training, as I recall this, they kind of build you back up. But you got to let all the shirt go first. Okay. And people can't hear how much shirt they have until it comes out of your mouth. Or you're with somebody else and it comes out of their mouth in a room full of strangers. And when I think about life coaches and, and all those type of things, you know, I, I, my mind can't wrap itself around it. Therapists I can get because most of my therapists have been in a bar somewhere, right? We just figure it out over a couple of, you know, wild turkeys and you get your, your shirt in one sock. So helping each other get through the path of life, all good for me. But when it came down to it, I realized I had this huge epiphany that it's on me to do this. There's nobody else mm-hmm. that's going to swoop in and fix this, whatever this is. So this guy who's texting that he's not, you know, nobody's listening to him and all this kind of stuff. I mean, do you ever consider, he doesn't know who I am and he probably never hear this, but what if it's with you and not them? What's the, what if the problem is that, is is lying with you and we're only hearing your side, right? We don't know who these mm-hmm. people are, don't know who we work for, don't know what the issue was. But it's easy to be self-righteous when you're not being treated the way you think you should be mm-hmm. without digging underneath the covers and seeing why you feel this way about whatever's going on. And to me, that's been one of the big challenges of my life. I realize when I respond to something, it's different than reacting to something. Right. And there's a huge difference. And I've, I was a reactor, for nuclear reactor for most of my life. But I became a responder and, and I took a three deep breaths and take a look at this a little bit different and those type of things. And it, is, it has taken me a long way. The guys that I knew back when I played semi-pro football, for the most part, they've accepted who I am now. But they can't believe I'm the same guy that I was back then who would rather just, you know, create mayhem basically so the nuclear reactor that's a great point because i almost went there when i found out this thing about Mm. the former colleague and i was just about to go well f this and one of my friends said well i'm going to give you some advice but i know you're going to do what you want to anyway because that's what you do (laughs) i was like hey what do you mean and she's like i always tell you to just take 24 hours because you'll feel different about it in the morning right and she was totally right i felt so much different about it in the morning and it's just I'm like, wow, isn't that interesting? Because there's this whole belief that just because you had a good relationship with them in the past doesn't mean it's going to continue. And I always say that contracts expire. And this can be in work and in family. And I'm sorry to say this. I get a lot of flack from some people for saying this, but also in marriages. you got to sit down with one another across the table and say, how are we doing? Are we on the same page? Do we want the same things? Do we come from the same place? Do we have the same goals? Are we happy with our environment? Are we both dealing in? And if the answer is no to most of those, or you're not in alignment, you gotta go. And some people just wanna bring others down and don't wanna change, and others are hopping around. Like we're talking about with the story about the millennials, there's a Mm -hmm. funny website called Fairy God Boss. (laughs) (laughs) Don't know that one. Fairy God Boss was talking about this millennial quitting problem. And uh, in this article on that site, it's saying that um, they looked at 2,000 millennials and asked them about their workplace requirements and why they leave. 37% said that having a job with flexible hours is essential, and a quarter of those reported that they had left jobs because they couldn't work flexibly, flexibly. But the number one reason they left was because simply they didn't vibe well with their office atmosphere. Did you say vibe? Yep, that's the word. In fact, the study found that the average millennial has already had three jobs, and the majority of them start to look for another job before they even hit the three-year mark, all because of the work environment. 
So it's all about the vibe, dude. Could you imagine saying that ever? I could imagine a cement truck lumbering down the street that's <laughs> that's coming towards the driveway that we've broken out over three days in a 95 degree heat. And I've been working 14 hours and go to the guy who pays my bill saying, I don't think I vibe with you anymore. This vibe isn't working for me. I'm yeah. sorry. How's yeah. the dental? <laughs> yeah, right. How's the dental? Anyway, we're going to uh, segue here. Uh, the Daily Duff is here with us. Uh, Chris Duffy, who does the open of the show, uh, puts a nice little piece together for Jen and I. And here is his offering today. The Powderhorn Park neighborhood of Minneapolis has known the familiar side of Linda Taylor for the past 19 years that she's lived there. The 70-year-old retiree is known for her cheery greetings, her heart of gold, and sage advice on gardens and plants. Linda has rented for the entire time that she's been a part of the Powderhorn Park landscape, and she recently got the bad news that her landlord was planning on selling the house, making it a very real possibility that Linda would have to uproot and leave her garden and her neighbors behind. But Powderhorn Park, Minnesota had other plans. Her friends and neighbors put great value in having Linda around. Then they put together a fund to buy Linda's house and give it to her. There were art shows, there were bake sales, fundraisers. A local realtor worked commission-free. But the home's title now says Linda Taylor, free and clear. In these times of money pressure, a lesson in things that really matter. Economists held their breath Tuesday as a nearly 1,000-foot container ship bumped into a sandbar and went aground in the Savannah River in Georgia. Happily, the ship was quickly pulled off the sand. The very last thing our tenuous supply chain needs right now would be a huge cargo ship blocking other huge cargo ships from arriving. The port of Savannah is the second busiest on the East Coast. It is getting record amounts of cargo coming in. And the big container ship companies are reporting that their U.S. port delays are significantly less than they were six months ago, meaning your Walmart shelves should be fully stocked very soon. Just in time for summer sandbar fun, a new item will be finding itself into the boat coolers of weekend warriors. The well-known Tennessee-born libation created by one Jasper Newton Daniel long ago, premixed with a Coke. Jack and Cokes in a can and bottles are available presently. One has to ask, what on earth took this invention so long? War Diary. We're finding out that Ukrainians have so bravely and tenaciously fought to defend their country from Putin's invasion, they're running out of ammunition, equipment, everything. Lack of armaments has become a dangerous weakness in the country's eastern regions, where the fighting is the heaviest. The U.S. just approved another billion dollars in weapon shipments to Ukraine, but the equipment attrition is a two-sided sword. Recent reports suggest the Russian army has lost so many frontline tanks and personnel carriers, they're pulling World War II-era designed tanks out of equipment graveyards to fight the battles. Scrolling down. We found out last week that former President Trump's vision for the new Air Force One what some called a vanity project because he revised the paint scheme and it looked, well, just a little suspiciously like his own private jet, that idea was not likely going to happen because the colors Trump chose create their own set of overheating challenges on the skin of the airplane. 
But that debate hit a bigger issue with regard to the executive aircraft. One of the Air Force requirements for the new Air Force One is that it be a four-engined passenger jet. The problem is Boeing and every other aircraft manufacturer are just about out of the four-engined passenger jet market. The airliners you and I have been riding around in for the last 30 years overwhelmingly are equipped with two engines. The last four-engine passenger jets built were the Boeing 747-8 passenger model and the Airbus A380. Both of these production lines have ended. America's new Air Force One missions will be performed by two of the last 747s built, originally intended for airline use, but bought secondhand. And it's not just the President's plane the Air Force wants four engines on. That notorious E-4 Airborne Command Center, a 747-based jet that they often call the Doomsday Plane because it can survive a nuclear attack, first flew almost 50 years ago. It, too, needs to be replaced and they want four engines on it. Hey, it's defense spending. The sky's the limit, right? Well, maybe. But as our national debt climbs past $30 trillion, maybe the military has more pressing things to worry about than paint jobs. And one last click. It is an urban myth that the Stonewall riots in New York City, which are considered the historical beginning of the gay rights movement, began because a bar full of LGBT customers were depressed and volatile over Judy Garland's death that day. The truth is the customers fought back because the bar's mob owners hadn't paid off the cops who raided the place that week. But there's no denying that Judy Garland was and is a gay icon, an immensely talented artistic soul who nevertheless had been almost constantly badgered, chastised, and demeaned by the cutthroat show business culture around her. Louis B. Mayer himself cruelly bragged about his little hunchback. Even her name was unsatisfactory. Frances Gum reportedly became Judy Garland after vaudeville audiences at Chicago's Oriental Theater laughed at her birth name. Never quite pretty enough. Never quite sultry enough. Never quite ravishing enough to the all-male Hollywood power brokers of that age. They could never quite figure out her appeal, which of course became immortal in her role as Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz. Frances Ethel Gum's 100th birthday was last week, and the marginalized, talented actress and singer continues to be celebrated by a marginalized, talented community who rallies under the banner Judy sang about all those years ago. That ultimate, elusive happiness is just over the rainbow. I'm Chris Duffy with The Daily Duff. Thanks to John and Jen for having me on today. Have yourself a great week and be good. Good stuff from Chris Duffy. Be good. Be good. I love it. You know what the best part of all that was for me? Can you guess? What? The Coca-Cola with the Jack Daniels in a can. I mean. Are you kidding me? (laughs) I mean, here's my thing. We can come up with cell phones and all this great wireless technology. It took how long to put Coke, Jack and Coke in a can that I could take out of my fridge? Too long is what I'm saying. Too long. So that's the thing, though. You like brown liquor. I do. Brown liquor. I I don't do brown liquor. You don't? mm, So like lighter, fruitier things? I'm shocked. No, no, no. 
I can do white liquor. Gin and vodka is that's cool. But the brown okay. liquor, I start dancing on tables. I don't remember what I said. Yeah, I start fights with people. It's just bad. I I'm, mean, it's, it'd be I'm, great for a reality show, but not for say, my life. <laughs> I, I know what I'm sending you for Christmas. So, no. my a quick kind of dad story on my end before we mush on, because I want to hear about this Prince thing that you, the experience you went through this this band that you saw. Oh, the uh, cover band. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. My dad uh, was a banker. Uh, button-down collar guy five days a week, you know, uh, back in the 60s and 70s. And he looked like everybody that worked at NASA. He had the black plastic glasses and the white shirt and the tie and the suit and the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And for a few years, he worked downtown. And I clearly remember my mom, who was way ahead of her time, as a chain-smoking, sailor-type swearing, uh, you know, woman who yelled at the TV set if the Cubs were losing kind of deal. And she had this 1953 Plymouth, this battleship of a, of a car, yeah. And on Fridays, we'd go down and pick him up downtown. And to see my mom drive on the Kennedy Expressway with three on a tree and a ciggy hanging out of her mouth was a thing of beauty. Beautiful. She'd pick my dad up. We'd come down, and sometimes we'd go get a burger or whatever. And anyway, my dad was an early adopter of wild turkey bourbon. I don't know mm. where he picked this up. And so his thing was, son, if you're going to drink, you're going to drink with me first. It's kind of an okay. old world thing, right? So I thought, sure, maybe we're going to crack some Ballantine's Triple X beer that's on sale or, or some mm, Bush. There was no Bush Light, just regular Bush or Budweiser. There was no light beer back then, by the way, which I find, that's a whole show. I could right? do a whole show on why does light beer exist. <laughs> but that's a different thing. And uh, he said, so I turned 16, 17, whatever it was. And, and you know, the guys in the neighborhood are having beers here and there. And okay, so sit down. And he takes out this decanter. A wild, it looked like a wild turkey, like you'd see out in the forest. It was a wild sure. turkey decanter. And he pulls the decanter's head off. Mm-hmm. And he says, smell this. And I thought I was going to faint. It's 101 <laughs> proof bourbon, you know. Ooh. And at that point, I've been mostly drinking milk and Coca-Cola. That was about it my whole life. And you're how old at this point? 16, 17. Okay. He says, you need to yep, er- yep. learn this right now. Okay. Because, you know, you're getting ready to drive, get your learner's permit, all that. St- the rite of passage for young men. Yeah. And I remember sitting at the table with my dad, and he pours what I thought was about a gallon and a half in a shot glass. <laughs> right. And he says, here we go, bottoms up, and bam. To this day, I don't think my left ear is still what it should be. For, I think I had hearing loss from drinking it. Wow. It was in my throat, and I thought, wow. But after, he, it was an important lesson to me. Mm-hmm. You're going to do this somewhere. Do it right here. I want to see, I want be right here when this happens. Right. And it's one of many lessons my dad uh, gave me over the years. The big one was all financial. The guy was a banker. He spent 35 years in banking. And mm-hmm. his early years were in collections. So he knew what it was like when people couldn't pay their bills. And then he was in loans. So he knew it was like when people wanted money. And then he kind of worked his way up to the upper echelons. And he was like a bank vice president. It was a big deal. Uh, hardworking guy. Uh, mm-hmm. But his, his big escape during the week was Star Trek. Not an athletic bone in his body. So I'm the anomaly. Football, boxing, baseball, the whole drill. Right. And I think he kind of lived vicariously through through me on that level. A um, couple times out in the yard, I'd have the Sears weights, you know, going to pump iron at 17, 18. And yeah. here's my dad wearing cutoff jean shorts with with um, an undershirt, you know, and, sure. and black socks and shoes on with white legs. I mean, come on, dad, dad, cover those things I mean, I'm just picturing up. like Crispin Glover from Back basically, to the Future, you know. <laughs> basically, with glasses. <laughs> right. With, same right. kind of thing. Uh-huh. Pretty much the same deal. But his one thing to me that has, has guided my life, there's been a lot, but the big one was there's the price you pay and then there's the price you pay for paying the price. Mm. Meaning my first car, for example, 1969 Camaro, 
uh, 700 bucks. I didn't have the money. Dad's going to be the bank. He says, we'll sit down and figure this out. So we sit down. 1969 Camaro. You know what that's worth now? Oh, Not gosh. 700 bucks. No. So we sat down. I was working at a, a, a drugstore at the time. Buck 45 an hour, maybe. Buck 55, whatever it was. How many hours did John have to work to pay back Dad the $700 plus interest? Mm-hmm. And when you lay it out like that, yeah, it seems like an eternity. So we worked through all that stuff. He says, so here's the price of this car is $700. Great. And here's how many hours you're going to have to work and pay me back. Plus insurance. That car sat for two months after I bought it in front of the house. So I had the money for insurance. You know what that felt like? Ah. Difficult. Torture. I washed it every day. Mm -hmm. I'd walk home from school. I couldn't even drive it to high school. It was sitting in front of the house. But that lesson has burned into me over the years. Mm -hmm. So... A, you're never going to get me to pay over about 100 bucks for a cell phone because buying a cell phone for the same amount my car cost, not going to happen. <laughs> and I think a lot of people see this stuff up front and then you realize you're going to pay for this. Listen, Jen, I can remember when I thought 36 months was a long time on a car loan. Now you could do it for like six and eight years. I know. They can draw it out or Man. you don't pay anything for the first year. I mean, they yeah. hook you in in it's all free. kinds of ways. No, mm-hmm. it isn't. Yeah. So that that's never left me, that whole paying the price thing. And I think the other part of it was... He said, always invest in yourself. He said, the houses will come and go. The cars will come and go. But who you are and your talents and your gifts, that will never change. And to this day, you know, I'm sure if he was around, he'd be like, they really pay you to talk? I'm like, yeah, yeah. Dad, just to talk. So uh, great. great memories of my dad in, in that respect. Uh, and um, I'm glad. If, if I he, was going to ask you for a good dad yeah, memory, so and you it, came right up with it. If he knew that Jack and Coke was in the fridge, we'd be sitting there together at the table handling that so well so here's what i want to know how did it go other than losing your hearing in your left ear <laughs> how did the brown liquor experience go for you and dad and, wh- and what was your takeaway because i'm sort of torn with this right now my son is 16 a yeah. lot of parents of 16 year olds are like hey if he's gonna drink a beer i'd rather you do it with me yep. i haven't gone there yet we haven't shared a beer but i, I thought about it we were up Listen. in wisconsin everybody with a pulse can drink in wisconsin right. so i was just like maybe we should have a beer together i just haven't done it yet and if you want to um want me to come over and, and bring the decanter and say, "Hey, kid, this is Maybe. the this is the high octane shirt." He's gonna have it eventually. I just uh-huh. don't know. You know, you want him to have it in a safe environment. So I'm I'm really right. torn about that. But what happened for you? How did you? Well, what so was your take you know, away? so then we sat there for a couple hours, and you know, I got silly and laughed at everything he did. And it was it, for him, it was a big rite of passage. My dad wasn't real close to his dad, mm-hmm. so I think it was a bonding experience we had. And of course, I bought him decanters of wild turkey for Christmas or the rest of his life, and we'd sit right. and have a couple shots. And for us, it was a bonding thing. And you know, for me, it's given me kind of an ironclad liver. I hate to say this, but you build up a resistance to some things. Interesting. Only have one kidney. Donated one mm-hmm. to my daughter, so I got to watch what I do. But um, mm-hmm. I don't have a problem going and knocking back, you know, the wild turkey or any sort of brown liquor like that. The stuff you drink would knock me out. Vodka? Uh, no, no way. There's no way. Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. see, so there's there's just a you know just a little bit of that with some fresh lemon. You know, I, I'm mm-hmm. I it's too to healthy. Say, it sounds healthy to me. I, why would healthy? I want to do that? Yeah. Vodka, you lemon. Like take you know, vodka's like paint thinner. I don't think that's healthy well, I, at no, all. No, I'm talking about the lemon part. So oh, if I put lemon the in the bourbon, yeah, yeah, no. yeah. That's that's you know people do now. Like, oh, it's refreshing. I'll get my vitamins <laughs> while I'm killing my liver. Great. Yeah. But no, I, I literally I remember my dad for one of the dinners. I was about 15, 16. He poured some wine for us for the kids. And he cut it with some water. So it was like bad homemade rosé, right? Like he took red wine and cut it with water. Is there good rosé? But I'm sorry, go ahead. 
Yeah, you know what? Rosé all day, honey. It's a summer thing. <laughs> but yeah, now, the, and I remember, because we, at the time, we were going to church, and, and that was back when they would give you wine and then just wipe the chalice with a napkin and then turn <laughs> it around right. and give it to the next person. That's you know, right. we were all swapping germs. It was That's like right. the flu would just go around the church. Yeah. So I already was familiar with the taste of red wine from that because it was real wine back then. I mean, it was it was real wine never would be now, never is now. But so I, I was like, wait a minute, this is like kind of watered down wine. And I kind of liked the way it felt, but it wasn't like, oh, I, I got to have that again. So it was, it was fine. It, it took away the urgency of, oh, you can't have this or, mm, oh, you can't really? do this. Because yeah. so, I always feel like what you resist persists. So sure. if I say to my son, there's a lock on the liquor cabinet, don't you dare touch of course. it. You know, that would make him go, mm, I want to touch it. I want to touch it. I want to yeah. touch it. Whatever you do, don't mm-hmm. study for the next test. Right. See if that works. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and I'm not kidding. You know, at some point, I, I've had more times with friends of mine's sons that have come out. And we're having a beer together. I'm like, anybody can drink beer. But here's right. what you got to watch for. And this is what happens when you drink it. And here's a safe place. Here's the effects after two or three of these. You know, and, and like I said, the older I've gotten, I don't sit here and do it all the time like I used mm-hmm. to back in the day. But it does give you an appreciation. My dad did that in a safe place as opposed to me being in a bar somewhere and being an idiot or somebody's house, you know? Right, or somebody's basement and then hiding it under the couch. Right. I'm sorry, did, did I say that out loud? <laughs> I mean, I never did that. I never did that. I know you never did. No, you're a good girl. <laughs> well, actually, so when I went to go... <laughs> went to this street fair. Chicago is great for live music outside again. Thankfully, mm-hmm. it's back on. So I had a friend, she said, you know, come up and to Andersonville, which is a predominantly Swedish neighborhood in Chicago, north of the city, north of Wrigleyville, yep. and between Evanston and Wrigleyville, kind of. So I go, and my son says, I want to come. And I'm like, wait a minute. I'm sorry. You know I'm your mother, right? <laughs> yeah. No, I want to come, Mom. I want to go. I want to see some, you know, I want to see a, a festival. I want to, I said, well, I'm going to see a band. This is Prince cover band. He's like, oh, I know Prince. And I'm like, yeah, of course they know all the music now because sure. of Spotify. They can sure. look it all up. So I said, okay, again, just warning you, there's going to be a mom dancing to Prince Factor that might give you PTSD. And he's like, I'll just walk around. So sure enough, when Let's Go Crazy, Let's Get Nuts started, we were, you know, dancing like maniacs, my girlfriends and I, and I just kind of looked over my shoulder and my son was out of there. And he wandered around and, you know, looked at some of the booths and there were artists and there was all sorts of cool stuff to just check out in Andersonville. So many mm-hmm. great places and mm-hmm. coffee cool shops place. and bookstores and, and all, all of that. But he, he was off and because he's got a cell phone, I could text him and say, hey, meet us at this corner in one hour and just wandering around. Bumped into Richard Roper, our friend, oh, movie yeah. reviewer, and that was fun. I'm like, Richard? He's like, Jen? I was like, wait a minute, how you doing? We're all dancing to this Prince cover band. And the guy, the band is originally from Milwaukee and they travel the whole country where he basically impersonates Prince and he does a wonderful job. They, they really did yeah. sound like you Prince. You know, I, I have, we'll have to couch this to the next show. I have a real hard time with tribute artists. I, it's right. just a, I have the same problem I told you, I think with movies, if I can't, if there's not a believable storyline, I can at least hook into a little bit. I, I don't want nothing to do with it. Right. So to watch somebody, no offense to this guy or any tribute artist, mm-hmm. is to come up and, and, and imitate that. And then people like, wow, you're just like so-and-so. Well, you're not really, but mm-hmm. it, it does fill a gap, I suppose. And you'd have to explain it to me in some therapeutic terms. Over some sort of bourbon and clear liquid, I suppose. Maybe. You know, maybe, maybe I just needed the right person to sit me down and, and test that brown liquor. It was probably that I had a bad hey. first experience, so darn it. They got some stuff that is smooth as the knob on a chrome trailer hitch, I'm here to tell you. 
Okay, that's good to know. I'm it is all good for to know. new experiences as long as nobody gets arrested in the in the process. Yeah, you know, <laughs> la- <laughs> really, I, officer, we were just testing I, it. It was for you the know the who show. she is. She's Jennifer Weigel. This you is can't research. arrest us. He's John St. Augustine. <laughs> we don't have a whole lot of time to go into this, but Rich Roper came over when I was at Harpo, and mm-hmm. he got on Gene Chatsky's show, and we were doing a tribute to Steven Spielberg movies. I think I could squeeze mm. this in, yeah. and. Um, so we, we, we got different Spielberg clips. So this was for radio, and Gene was talking about the business and all that kind of stuff, and Rich was great as he always is, and he's all, you know, all over the place and stuff. And so we were talking about the movies and which ones he likes and which ones he didn't, and back and forth. And when we go to break, I put a clip in of Jaws where Roy mm. Scheider is at the back of the boat, and he's chumming the water. And the shark head comes up where everybody jumped in 1975 and of still course. do. And he says, yeah, you, why don't you come down and chum some of this shirt? But he didn't say shirt. He said mm-hmm. the, the, the other word. Mm-hmm. And so that aired on our, <gasps> yeah, oh, well, but we're on, it was oh, on that's uh, right. it was XM. on Sirius or yeah, so XM, did, yeah. You know, mm-hmm. Howard Stern's making a fortune doing that right. stuff. Right. So I didn't think anything of it. So about four months goes by, and my phone rings in my office. And oh. the, the show had aired 25 times and repeats. It was summer. Right. And um, I get a call from the program director at the time, and she says, Gene said shirt. Mm-hmm. I said, Gene said what? She goes, Gene said the shirt word. I said, no, Gene doesn't know that word, mm-hmm. but Roy Scheider said the word, and he's dead. And the you know we cleared off. It turned into a big deal because oh. yeah. And so I called I called Rich and I said, so no, no offense, we may not we may take that part out. He goes, ah, shirt, <laughs> <laughs> in his indomitable way. Anyway, it's been fun, but on this Father's Day, we are done. I hope that you have a great day. Enjoy your kids and let them sit back, have a beer, have a cold one with Andy. Just celebrate all that you've put in, a lot of great conversations and obviously good insights because your kids turned out pretty darn good. So good on you. Thank you. Always great to be with you. If you ever want to get in touch with John, you can find him on Facebook, John St. Augustine, because don't be fooled by imposters. That's right. Right. No tributes to me yet. No tributes yet, but a band is coming soon. I can feel it. I'm not a psychic, but I interview them. (laughs) JenWeigel.com is where you can find more about me. I'm Jen Weigel. I'm John St. Augustine. Thanks so much for joining us. Until next time, be well, safe travels, keep the faith. Sometimes I
Yeah.